Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week, the podcast where we take the curated links on damninteresting.com and break them down for you and explain what you may or may not have missed during the week. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link from Smithsonian Magazine. We've got a sweet little ditty called First Dinosaur Belly Button Discovered in Fossil from China. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I have questions, yeah. which I'm sure will be answered. Yes, as did I. But I highly recommend you actually check out the article on Smithsonian Magazine Online because it's got a really nice artist illustration from a rendering of what the animal could have been like if it was like reclining on its side in that Jason Alexander George Costanza <laughs> Seinfeld. The reference may be a little dated for some of our listeners, but it's spectacular. It's like the Burt Reynolds pose where he's just like, yes. hey, baby. 100%. It's so great. And it's like he's in a little forest floor with some dappled shade. I get really excited about dinosaurs. But <laughs> belly buttons, questions? Okay, let's get into this. So paleontologists have discovered the oldest belly button known to science, and it belongs to a Sitacasaurus, a member of the horned dinosaurs Ceratopsia. And as you may have already guessed, the belly button does not come from an umbilical cord as it does with mammals but from the yolk sac of the egg-laying creature. Hmm. So modern egg hatchers like snakes and birds lose their belly button scar within a few days or even weeks after hatching. But other organisms keep the umbilical scar for the rest of their lives. And when they're inside the egg, the embryo's abdomen is connected to the yolk sac, which you know gives the embryo a food source for growing and developing. And the scar appears when the embryo detaches from the yolk sac and other membranes before or as it's hatching from the egg. The Sitacasaurus umbilical scar is similar to that of an adult alligator and is the first example of one in a non-avian dinosaur that predates the Cenozoic period, which is about 66 million years ago. Hmm. Sitacasaurus, measured almost seven feet long, was noteworthy for its high and narrow skull with a parrot-like beak. And the way they were able to identify the elusive belly button was with a modified version of something called LSF, or laser-stimulated fluorescence. And this modification in particular used a lot more of that laser intensity versus previously established laser imaging techniques. Phil Bell, a dinosaur paleontologist involved with the study, said, it really looks as though the animal could get up and walk away, mm. imagining these animals as living, breathing entities rather than just dead skeletons is what fascinates me. Bringing them to life is one of the goals of my work. <laughs> I mean, maybe we haven't learned that lesson. After all, it's taken, what, five Jurassic Parks for us to <laughs> maybe come to the conclusion, I don't know, maybe not a good yeah, idea. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if anything, it's bringing us closer to normalizing the idea of like, you know what, this could work out. Like, we each kind of have a reasonably happy ending. <laughs> Regardless, the team was able to image the umbilical scar, which had faded over time, and they were able to identify this by seeing a change in the pattern of skin and scales where the dino's belly button would be. I mean, I think the real news here is that current modern-day alligators have belly buttons. 
I was not aware. You know, <laughs> this warrants a little bit of citizen journalism, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, just, you know, find a nice one. Find a, a, a kind alligator. <laughs> and uh, I want to see an alligator belly button. Somebody bring me that. <laughs> you know, just ha- have you ever tried consent with the alligators? That's I true. see a lot of forceful manipulation of <laughs> them. But, you know, have we ever tried to ask like, hey, show us your belly button, please. Crock calling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from theatlantic.com, and it's titled, A Frog So Small It Could Not Frog. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. But but he must frog. (laughs) He is a very small orange little guy. There's actually nothing put down in this image, but that's okay. We'll dive into the details. (laughs) So, you know, there's no, like, coin to compare it to, unfortunately. But the leap of a frog is a quintessential evolutionary feat. The critter's girthy gams thrust from behind to springboard the body up and out. A pair of acrobatic arms stretch forward to seamlessly break the fall. The landing is very precise, very controlled, says Richard Esner, a biologist at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. One might expect that any frog worth its salt should be able to stick it. And most frogs, says Marcio Pai, a biologist at Edge Hill University in the UK, do. Then there is the poor pumpkin toadlet. Spanning roughly a centimeter from snout to bum, about the width of a skittle, and outfit with scrawny toothpick limbs that just barely hold its bulbous body aloft, it is the dashund of the amphibian world, about as aerodynamic as you might expect. When these little frogs jump, they leap spectacularly, their airborne bodies imbued with all hope. Then their bodies twist and invert, some somersaulting, others pirouetting in an almost rotisserie-esque spin. (laughs) Somebody, whoever wrote this article, obviously likes eating frogs. I can see no other way around the editorial nature of it. Yeah, girthy gams in a rotisserie spin? I mean, come on. Yeah, they're just like, this this frog can't do anything. Just imagine how delicious it must be. Well, to be fair, the minute you gave the name, I Googled it because how dare an article not include the picture. And it's so small. It's the size of a human thumbnail. Yeah. And there is a very cute picture. It's just not compared to anything. And then you hear it's a skill and it's like, wow. Well, and they had to pick a food item. Like, there's yeah, a ton true. of things that size, but he's like, no, a Skittle, delicious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, in their final descent, the toadlets sometimes reach for a handhold, but the effort is for naught. <laughs> they crash to the ground, arms akimbo, landing not on their forelimbs with grace, but on their butt, their belly, oh. their back, their head, in bouncing beach ball defeat. Oh. Pi told me, stifling a laugh, they fall on their face all the time. It's sad. <laughs> Okay, well, even when the scientific researcher has to stifle a laugh about how clumsy these little gobos are, I am thrilled. <laughs> I have to take umbrage at the idea, though, that a clumsy frog is not a frog. Like, by right? that definition, I'm not a human. Like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> He's still a frog. He's just really bad at jumping. Exactly. Yeah. Way to gatekeep frogs. Yeah. Science. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then it enters this whole, you know, like philosophical discussion about what defines a frog and its attributes and all that. We don't have to go there today, but I can tell you one thing. Pi assures us that the fumbles don't seem to hurt the frogs. Oh, so good. they just bounce. So what hamstrings the frog's flight doesn't seem to be a lack of brawn or grit. The muscles work just fine. 
Instead, their klutziness seems to be a sensory deficit rooted in the frog's absurdly tiny inner ear, the seat of their vestibular system, which coordinates movement and balance. The vestibular structures in these frogs are so small, that is, S-M-O-L, that they verge on non-functional, making it extraordinarily difficult (laughs) for the amphibians to orient themselves in space while walking, much less maneuver mid-flight. Pike can't know for sure, but he has a hunch that being a pumpkin toadlet is a deeply combobulating experience. (laughs) Almost, he said, like being perpetually drunk. The teeny toadlets also have all sorts of issues with their head, which can shrink only so much before it malfunctions. (laughs) At least... Yeah. At least two pumpkin toadlet species have inner ear structures so underdeveloped that the frogs are deaf to their own mating calls. Oh, Oh, no! (laughs) What a little accident this guy is! Yeah, and their ability to navigate is also quite pitiful. For the vestibular system to function properly, a fluid called endolymph has to traverse the canals of the inner ear, bopping sensory hairs that send electrical impulses to the brain. But when Esner, Pai, and their colleagues scanned the skulls of several species of frogs, they found that in the pumpkin toadlets, those fluid-conducting tubes were extraordinarily narrow. They are among the smallest vestibular structures ever documented in a full-grown vertebrate. Pai told me we had to measure them in micrometers, Hmm. which makes it quite difficult for liquid to flow at adequate speeds when the frogs are rotating and rocketing about as they are wont to do mid-flight when they're spinning really fast. So, while species with adequately sized inner ears bounded happily back and forth, the pumpkin toadlets careened like kites in a hurricane. In a team's <laughs> trials, the little frogs landed on their back more than a third of the time, sometimes bouncing so vigorously upon touchdown that they rocketed back up and inverted yet again. <laughs> Just like those little like vending machines, super balls, except they're yeah. mostly alive. Oh my god! Alive. Yeah, it's actually kind of literally like that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Munoz said, apparently, "Oh my god, the derpiness," uh. which <laughs> I Honestly, think suggests same. the age group of our scientific establishment <laughs> is changing. That's right. We're uh, going through that generational shift now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So the toadlet's problem, Esner told me, isn't really with takeoff. They seem to manage that part okay. Once aloft, though, they can't get their bearings and fail to course correct. The situational awareness they lack is what divers and gymnasts use to subtly reposition themselves mid-jump. In its absence, though, the toadlets have no idea what their bodies are doing. It has no (laughs) feedback to know the best way to stabilize itself. Their aerodynamic mistakes add up until the toadlets crash at the end of their doomed forward vault. (laughs) (laughs) Landings this catastrophic have been documented only a few times among amphibians before in frogs that sadly had their vestibular systems deliberately disrupted. For Esner and Pai, the comparison speaks to just how disoriented pumpkin toadlets must be. So maybe it's not entirely surprising that the frogs don't seem to like to jump, looking kind of grumpy, according to (laughs) Esner, when they do, and deploy the tactic only as a last-ditch escape. (laughs) It does work. The toadlet's clumsy cavorts, coupled with their peewee size and yen for hiding among dead leaves, can make them infuriatingly difficult to snare. Pai said two people looking all day might just catch one frog. The toadlets, though, prefer to simply walk to get around and do so painfully, slowly, almost chameleon-like. It may be the only way they can avoid overtaxing their puny inner ears. (laughs) Go slow, little toadlet! 
Yeah. <laughs> so the author asks Esner, who has made a career out of studying jumping, if he thought that the cost of miniaturization seemed worth it, if there was even a point to a terrestrial frog that couldn't properly hop. And boy, I have gotten that question a lot, he said. But <laughs> Esner isn't so worried, especially because he's recorded a couple of other species that are wildly incompetent at touching down, managing only belly flops galore, and they're fine, he said. The pumpkin toadlets too get by, even thrive. On the tropical forest floor, there are plenty of insects for them to nosh on. At least a few species are toxic and colored in bright warning hues. Even their jumps aren't that bad, Munoz points out. They still rapidly put distance between themselves and whatever's after them. It's true that in botching their landings, they've largely eschewed what most people might assume makes a frog fundamentally frog. But maybe the true marvel is that the toilets have figured out a way to live without the signature hoppity hop, all while embodying one of life's extremes. Pi said, it's very possible that you can't get a functioning frog smaller than that. Okay, so functioning. <laughs> yeah. Could it be that our dear little pumpkin toadlet might eventually evolve to just like favor this ping pong super ball locomotion and just like it exists only to bounce chaotically? <laughs> They're just born in vertigo. Like that's just their constant I mean, it experience. sounds like they kind of almost, they're always kind of towing the line. So yeah. just lean into it. Go 3, 4D, little frog. <laughs> yeah, or they just become permanent walkers. I mean, we don't question like penguins don't fly and we're not like, how come they don't attempt it anymore? It's like, look. <laughs> Is that I, even a bird? That's not I mean, their thing. Exactly. You know, birds that don't bird. I mean, yeah, whatever. They can still be a frog. I validate I think we them. Should, I see I, them. I think we should rebrand them. <laughs> this is, instead of calling it something cute like pumpkin toadlet, we just call it the unbothered frog. Cannot even be bothered to hop. Come on now. I mean, except they keep trying and embarrassing themselves. What they need to do <laughs> is like just embrace own, the walk. Yeah. On the walk. Embrace the walk. That's what they need to mm -hmm. do. <laughs> just not the author's walk because this right. person would love to right, put some right, of them no. to fry them up. That, the author just needs a good meal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They were hungry when they wrote this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. All right. This next one is from Atlas Obscura and it's called The Oldest Cookbooks from Libraries Around the World. Ooh. Yeah. And there's some really cool history here, not just of where these cookbooks came from and the development of cooking as a process worth documenting, but of what we all really want to hear about, which is the recipes, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, I can tell you there are no baby frog recipes, but <laughs> there are some pretty cool ones in here. So first, we have the 15th century Libro de Arte Cocinaria, or Book of the Art of Cooking. And while it's not the earliest example of what we might understand to be a cookbook, it is the earliest modern example in the sense that it clearly specifies ingredients, amounts, cooking times, techniques, and utensils. And the cooking time thing is especially interesting when you consider that it is pre-clock. You know, there really was no formalization of time at this point beyond the rough position of the sun. So mm. the instructions are laid out with things like boil the eggs for as long as it takes to recite the Lord's Prayer. Huh. Wow. So the art cocinaria was written by Maestro Martino, who was a medieval chef working for a cardinal just before the start of the Renaissance. And he was known at the time as the Prince of Cooks for the lavish banquets that he would prepare for the cardinal and his guests. And because of that, most of the recipes are pretty fancy for the time, including one entry titled How to Dress a Peacock with All Its Feathers So That When Cooked It Appears to Be Alive and Spews Fire from Its Beak. 
Oh, yeah. Mad Max. Okay. Yeah. It's like Hello Catholic Opulence. Like, I don't understand why we don't have that today. You know, I wish. I'm guessing it has something to do with liability. But go on. Probably. I mean, I understand why we don't eat peacocks, but you could do that with a chicken, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But at the opposite end of that spectrum, we have the Shanjia Chinggong, or Simple Offerings of Rural Households, which is the oldest surviving cookbook written in Chinese. And really, it's even older than that, because while the copy we have dates from the 17th century, the author is a man named Lin Hong who lived in the mid-13th century. So basically, they were maintaining these same recipes for hundreds of years. Wow. Most of the recipes in Simple Offerings are vegetarian, including porridges that blend various grains with rose leaf bramble and cakes made from pine pollen. Whoa. Mm. And believe it or not, there's even a recipe for what appears to be a vegan meat substitute. As translated by Robin Tolino, the recipe says, Collect together bean starch, deep fried dough, sesame pine nut, walnut, remove skins, add a little dill, white sugar, a little red ferment, ground into powder, mix it together, put it in a rice pot and steam until cooked, cut it to appear like pieces of lung, and serve it with a spicy sauce. Ooh, hardcore. So not just any meat, but, you know, organ meat, apparently. Mm -hmm. Next, we have The Cooking Manual of Madame Wu, which is one of only two surviving cookbooks by a Chinese woman prior to the 20th century. Again, this is a 17th century copy of a book that they estimate was written sometime in the late 12th or early 13th century. And while it has a lot of the standard Song Dynasty recipes for pickled daikon, dried bamboo shoots, and wontons, It also has quite a few items with Middle Eastern and Central Asian influences, including treats similar to halva and samosas. And speaking of women, one of the oldest and most popular cookbooks in 18th century Britain was called The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy. But while it was written by a woman named Hannah Glass, it was ascribed to a male author for centuries because, according to the famed English writer Dr. Samuel Johnson, Women can spin very well, but they cannot make a good book of cookery. Which just goes to show that sexist stereotypes are based on nothing, right? Like today, the assumption Mm -hmm. would be that a man couldn't cook, and back then it was a woman, and they can all just go jump in a lake. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Japan's oldest surviving cookbook is the Shijo School Text on Food Preparation, which dates to 1489 and was written by an unknown hochonin, or man of the carving knife, These chefs would simultaneously cook and perform knife skills for the shogun and their (gasps) guests, such as preparing a spiny lobster in the shape of a boat or serving miso soup with raw crane meat and lichen. So, yeah, Yeah. like sushi wasn't just raw fish. It was raw bird. It was raw everything. All with a little bit of a Benihana flourish, it sounds like. Exactly. This medieval author also spent a lot of time on detailing the proper pairing of vinegars with seafood, suggesting wasabi vinegar for carp, ginger vinegar for sea bream, and smartweed vinegar for sea bass, mm. which I don't think I could distinguish different vinegars, but I'm, you know, good for them. I hope they could. <laughs> <laughs> From India, meanwhile, we have Nasir Shah's Book of Delights, which dates to around 1500 and was commissioned on behalf of Giyath Shahi, an eccentric ruler of the Sultanate of Malwa in central India. Giyath himself appears in many of the book's illustrations with an oversized mustache and golden shoes, and the book includes a recipe for rice served with edible gold leaf. 
It also includes a fair amount of advice on how certain recipes would affect performance in the bedroom, such as how (laughs) fried sparrows' brains would produce strong lust. Ugh, strong something, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, a cookbook that is not that old in the grand scheme of things, but is one of the oldest for the country it's from. We have Australia's The English and Australian Cookery Book from 1864. The book was written anonymously, but has since been attributed to Edward Abbott, a Tasmanian aristologist, or one who is an expert on the subject of eating and cooking, Abbott wanted to encourage his fellow colonists to diversify their diet with local flora and fauna instead of relying on food shipments from the West. So his cookbook is tailored to appeal to the colorful culture of the soldiers, sailors, and prisoners that the Australian colonies were originally inhabited by. His recipes, therefore, include something he called Slippery Bob, which is kangaroo brains fried in emu fat, And a powerful cocktail he named Blow My Skull, which is made of lime, sugar, rum, porter, and brandy. They don't mention if he was at all successful in convincing (laughs) these soldiers to start eating fried kangaroo brains. It's the brains thing. Like, why the brains? Yeah, if you've just killed a whole kangaroo, you seem to have a lot of meat. Why would you go for the brains? (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, that's what all the brandy's for, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. We're going to stick on this history track for another article from The Guardian. The mystery of Black Death's origins solved. Hey, Mm. it only took a few centuries, right? Yeah. All right. So we knew that the Black Death was a thing. At least tens of millions of people died when bubonic plague tore across the continents. And despite intense efforts to uncover the source of the outbreak, the lack of firm evidence has up until now left the question open. Professor Johannes Krauss of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology said we have basically located the origin in time and space, which is really remarkable. Hmm. We found not only the ancestor of the Black Death, but the ancestor of the majority of the plague strains that are still circulating in the world today. Oh, that's (laughs) good to know. Oh, yeah. It's still going around. It's just not as much of a big deal as it used to be. But hey, you know, it's uh, the 2020s. Anything could happen. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So this international team came together to work on the puzzle when Dr. Philip Slavine, a historian at the University of Stirling, discovered evidence for a sudden surge in deaths in the late 1330s at two cemeteries near Lake Isikul in the north of modern-day Kyrgyzstan. Among 467 tombstones dated between 1248 and 1345, Slavin traced a huge increase of deaths with 118 stones dated 1338 or 1339. Inscriptions on some of the tombstones mention the cause of death as matana, the Syriac term for pestilence. So they did some more research and they found that the sites had been excavated in the late 1880s with about 30 skeletons removed from their graves. And after studying the diaries of the excavations, Slavin and his colleagues traced some of the remains and linked them to particular tombstones at the cemeteries. So then we had the investigation passed over to specialists on ancient DNA, including Krauss and Dr. Maria Spiru at the University of Tübingen in Germany. What they did was extract genetic material from the teeth of seven individuals who were buried at the cemeteries. Three of them contained DNA from Yersinia pestis, the bacterium that causes bubonic plague. They then did a full analysis of the bacterium's genome and found it was a direct ancestor of the strain that caused the Black Death in Europe eight years later 
And as a result, was probably the cause of death for more than half the population on the continent in the next decade or so. I mean, it does make me uncomfortable when you start comparing the whole like bacteria can go into hibernation and we've discovered bacteria living in the most remote, you know, horrible places on the earth. (laughs) And also we're going to dig up these bodies that we're pretty sure died of the Black Death and just go drilling into them, you know, make a (laughs) a little tooth dust airborne. What's the problem? You know, I, I have faith in scientists. I believe they use protective measures and I think we do have some kind of treatment for it now. Surely. That's true. It's, I, I suspect that's part of why it's not as much of an issue as we have like antibiotics mm-hmm. instead of being mm-hmm. back in the. Yeah. But as far as a cold case goes, this is pretty cold. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the cold, cold grip of death is what that's my true. brain said. And then yeah. I hesitated and then I said, no, I don't care. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> it really doesn't get colder than that, does it? Right. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from gizmodo.com. It's titled, MIT scientists propose space bubbles to reverse the worst of climate change. Mm. All right. So a team of researchers at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology believe that we can mitigate the worst of climate change with space bubbles. They've outlined a strategy in which a huge raft of bubbles carefully positioned between Earth and the sun would deflect sunlight and thus heat to stop further global warming. A webpage dedicated to the solution reads, Geoengineering might be our final and only option, yet most geoengineering proposals are earthbound, which poses tremendous risks to our living ecosystem. If we deflect 1.8% of incident solar radiation before it hits the planet, we could fully reverse today's global warming. The bubble array would be made of inflatable shields of thin silicon or other suitable material, according to the team. The bubble cluster would be placed in outer space at a Lagrange point, where the sun's and Earth's gravitational pulls create a stable orbit. The researchers also said that if the plan becomes a reality in the future, the completed array would be roughly the size of Brazil. They admitted that one of the main concerns with their proposal would be the logistics of fabricating a large film, transporting it into space, and then unfolding it to form the bubble raft. Right. You know, the whole plan. Yeah, the whole idea. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) They suggested fabricating the spheres in outer space to minimize shipping costs, which... You can't Uh, just, you know, get an Amazon Prime truck out there. I mean, (laughs) can't we just like shoot a whole bunch of bubble wrap into space to then like inflate into the structure it needs to be? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, why not? You know, (laughs) while we're imagineering over here, you know, um, (laughs) but I mean, to give them some credit, you know, these bubbles are silicon. They hypothetically would use some futuristic technologies to get it out there, blah, blah. I don't know how you would fabricate the spheres in outer space and make that less expensive, though. But Mm -hmm. anyways, the MIT researchers wrote in a statement, the bubbles can be intentionally destroyed by breaking their surface equilibrium, which would make the solar geoengineering solution fully reversible and significantly reduce space debris. Yeah, because this is like at the same time, we've got all these things about space debris. Like, how are this? How is the space debris (laughs) not going to be constantly popping bubbles? Yeah, especially if it's made out of this, you know, advanced material. Like, I don't know. It That seems like it would directly run counter to those concerns for sure. Mm-hmm. But this isn't the first space-based solution proposed to block the sun in some way. In 2017, a study suggested an Earth-sized shield to stop solar flares from messing with our communication systems. And I really wonder about the definition of study in some of these, you mm-hmm. know, uh, articles because... 
I don't know how they could have studied it, but there is an article link, so if you're interested, you can check that out. The MIT researchers described the proposed space bubbles as something to supplement other climate change mitigation efforts, but it is still a speculative plan and other solutions currently exist. If the political will, funding, and technology is available for these high-tech solutions, the same should be possible for much more reasonable solutions like putting a stop to new oil and gas drilling projects. Which, you know, maybe this is just an indirect dig to be like, hey, maybe this this is like an insane idea. Let's not put ourselves in a situation where we have to even consider something like this. Mm-hmm. Where we are trying to block out the sun, the <laughs> giver of all life, but you know, <laughs> right. whatever. Yeah, so, this is yeah. basically a, it's already too late. Uh-huh. Here's what we could maybe do if we threw every dollar and minute of ingenuity that we had at the problem. But, you know, instead of doing that, we could do the other thing that's really easy right now. It's not really easy, but it's a lot easier than space bubbles. Yeah. And, you know, we've invented those technologies and we know about them. Unlike right. Space bubbles. <laughs> that's entirely too logical. Come on, guys. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right, well, next we have a new study directly out of the University of Glasgow, and you can tell that it comes from a university website because the title is a mouthful that is the exact opposite of clickbait. (laughs) It is, new study suggests mystery still surrounds what happened to the bodies of Waterloo militaries. Mm. (laughs) So if you didn't catch that phrasing, basically, when the Battle of Waterloo happened almost exactly 207 years ago, it's estimated that some 13,000 soldiers died on the battlefield. The problem with this is that archaeologists have been through that field many times in the past and have found almost no bones. One Hmm. skeleton was discovered on the far edge of the field in 2015, and a few amputated leg bones were found in 2019 on the site of the main field hospital. But other than that, literally nothing has been found. So Hmm. that's been the mystery for about 200 years is what happened to all the bodies. And we've always sort of assumed, well, most societies at that point understood that you can't just leave the corpses out to rot and spread disease. So they must have moved all the bodies into a mass grave. And we just haven't found the location of the mass grave yet. Except Hmm. the more time passes and the more we cover that area again and again with sample digs and even sonar, the more sure we are that there are no mass graves anywhere near this battle site. But we're also really sure that this battle took place in this location and these bodies were there. (laughs) And we know the climate and the environment and how other bones from the same region have been preserved over time. So we know there's no way the bodies just sort of magically disintegrated. Somebody moved them and they went to a lot of effort to move them really, really far away. And we don't know why. But now a study by the University of Glasgow's professor Tony Pollard has put forth a new theory on what may have happened. Pollard is the director of the Center for Battlefield Archaeology, and his paper was published in the Journal of Conflict Archaeology, which I tried desperately to turn into some kind of burying the hatchet joke, but I cannot make it work. So we're just going to move on. Uh, His theory, at any rate, is that, number one, there definitely were mass graves after the battle. As evidence, he cites several previously undiscovered letters and personal memoirs from people living in the area at the time including a Scottish merchant named James Kerr, who described visiting the battlefield immediately afterward and having injured men die in his arms, but more importantly to this particular case, seeing three mass graves being filled with bodies, including their exact locations. Hmm. Number two, Pollard cites at least three newspaper articles from the 1820s that reference the importing of human bones from European battlefields 
for the purpose of producing fertilizer. What? Yeah. Hmm. He says that bone meal was an effective and popular form of fertilizer during that era, and the most likely answer is that the bodies were buried in the mass graves and then were looted in the subsequent months and years by enterprising merchants looking to collect a lot of free bones. Wow. He notes that with this theory in mind, it's possible for a team of archaeologists to now return to those three supposed mass grave sites and do some really detailed forensic work to look for areas of previous ground disturbance or basically a pit that used to be there and is now filled in. And if they get really lucky, they might find some very small traces of bones left over in those spots now that they have a more targeted place to look. But at the very least, if they're able to show that there were mass graves, then they'll know for sure that the bodies were moved after the fact, even if they can't yet say for certain whether the fertilizer theory is the reason why. I honestly hope that it is. I think it's really goth and cool and dark (laughs) to be like, yeah, we lost 13,000 soldiers, but they're going to grow our food for, you know, seasons and seasons to come. I think it's very recycling oriented of them. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Use every part of the soldier. Exactly. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Next link. Next link. link. All right. Uh, Pour one out for Internet Explorer because, yes, folks, Gizmodo is reporting Internet Explorer is dead. And it's the end of an era because for those who may be too young to remember, Internet Explorer used to be the champ. Yeah, it was the only one. It was the the (laughs) choice. That was it. Mm -hmm. Well, we had choices. Does anyone remember Netscape? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, the choices were slim and it was early (laughs) times, but basically this is marking the end of a 26-year run for the once dominant web browser. Microsoft will now automatically redirect the, according to Gizmodo, seven users still using Internet Explorer (laughs) to its new Edge browser for the next few months. This means that support for Internet Explorer has officially ended and Honestly, most users are not going to notice the difference unless a feeling washes over them that a key part of our digital (laughs) past has changed forever. Internet Explorer came on the scene in 1995, first as an add-on package and then eventually as part of the Windows 95 operating system. It was bundled Mm -hmm. with Windows, i.e. quickly rose to fame, defeating Netscape and the browser wars before reaching a peak market share of around 95% in 2003. But... Recent years have not been as kind to the browser. Rarely updated, lacking important features, and perhaps more importantly, failing to meet with international web standards, (laughs) Internet Mm -hmm. Explorer faltered to Mozilla and then rapidly lost favor with users when the simple and speedy Google Chrome entered the market. It's become a punching bag for jokes as the best web browser for downloading Chrome. (laughs) In 2015, Microsoft pivoted away from Internet Explorer with the integration of Microsoft Edge into Windows 10. They said that Explorer would continue to be supported for legacy users, but that pretty much announced the countdown clock beginning. Mm -hmm. Edge was originally known as Project Spartan. It was not an immediate success, failing to (laughs) steal significant market share away from Chrome. Microsoft kept IE alive as a safety net for those who were not comfortable making the switch. And then when Legacy Edge was replaced by the Chromium-based new Edge, Microsoft finally had a winning replacement. And even though IE lost mainstream relevance years ago, a lot of businesses continue to rely on the browser for access to critical information. 
even in Nikkei Asia reports that government agencies, financial institutions, and manufacturing and logistics companies in Japan that operate websites that only run on IE are now desperately seeking help to port over to a modern browser. It's, yeah, one rather shocking statistic based on a March survey from IT company Cayman's Net found that 49% of respondents working at organizations throughout Japan said they use IE for work. So best of luck getting that uh, transition, y'all. Yeah, I admit there's an institutional piece of software that I occasionally have to use and it uh -huh. doesn't work unless yep. you opened it. I think I could open it in Edge, but I resented even having to do that. I was like, <laughs> yeah. I, this is absolute nonsense. Like, Agree. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I was learning to build websites in the era just on the tail end of IE6, but definitely IE7 and IE8. I mean, IE6 was hell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, anybody listening will grimace in sympathy. <laughs> but IE, just in general, has been one of the most poorly integrated, supported, you know, web browsers yeah. for developers. And honestly, a lot of this is just web developers developers being like, nope, I don't give a crap anymore. I'm just <laughs> right. not going to support done. it. done. You can't yeah. make me. <laughs> yeah. And mm -hmm. like, it's crazy because these legacy systems, though, are still used in so many places. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely going to have side effects that we can't see. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, even in some of the biggest, oldest banks we have, COBOL, a programming mm -hmm. language from like the 70s, you can get people who will be paid millions of dollars in salaries just because they know the super rare old language that <laughs> <laughs> doesn't work very well. I mean, it works fine, but it doesn't have any of the modern features that we have now mm -hmm. uh, just to go in and fix the literal like IBM mainframe that powers a bank. Right. Because rather than spend the money to upgrade the system, they're just like, nope, find the one guy and keep it going with yep. duct, duct tape and him. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, here's hoping COBOL never dies, because if that happens, we're really screwed. We're but, all in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from sciencefocus.com. It's titled, How False Memories Can Shape a Criminal Court Case. Ooh. Yeah. I, okay. That's uncomfortable, but all right, let's go. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so false memory is the term given to recollections that are either partially or completely incorrect. We all have memories that are flecked with false details. Memories where we got our own age wrong or remember a friend coming along to an event they didn't actually attend. It's even quite common to steal entire memories, particularly from siblings. Ooh. In criminal justice settings, the same process can involve a witness misremembering important details, misidentifying a perpetrator, or even misremembering an entire crime. False memories are not deliberate lies, but unintentional subjective realities. False memories are our own truths. But where do they come from? In 2015, the author ran an experiment to find out. After three leading or suggestive interviews, 70% of her participants developed false memories. Many mm -hmm. confessed in vivid details to crimes that had never actually happened. Oh my god! Further studies <laughs> show that these false memories seemed real to others. The authors argued that only individuals themselves can know if a memory feels real to them, but other memory experts think that only researchers can spot a false memory. Such arguments have led to instances where false memory experts hired by the defense and the prosecution end up battling out their scientific disagreements in court, making it all seem more confusing than it really is. Memory researchers as a whole have long accepted that false memories exist, including in normal brains. But in cases where memories are the primary evidence, including in cases involving sexual assault where there is no physical or CCTV evidence, the stakes are high and emotions even higher. Researchers like Elizabeth Loftus and the author Julia Shaw move between two worlds, the scientific world where facts triumph 
and the judicial world where the only thing that matters is what can be proven in court. So why do we bother? Most of us became interested in false memories because of cases of wrongful conviction. It makes a lasting impression to see a victim point with certainty at a suspect, only to realize years later that the person they helped in prison was not the perpetrator at all. As false memory experts, their job is to help prevent unreliable evidence from contaminating the justice system one tiny courtroom lecture at a time. And that's the end of this article. Pretty quick. Just thought it was an interesting little read into something that is so ambiguous yet can determine mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. in a case. I once saw a thing that was basically on how unreliable is eyewitness testimony mm-hmm. e- even immediately after it happens. Mm-hmm. And it was a setup in a college classroom where basically they had arranged for a guy to enter the classroom, grab the professor's laptop and run out. And then immediately the professor said, OK, guys, I want you to write down everything you saw about that guy because you this was a test. And now we're going to put up a lineup of six people. Tell me which one of them was the guy. Wow. And the first of all, the number of people who could do it was incredibly low. But then they did it again with a different class where the, the, the professor said, like, I, I don't know. I didn't see. I just saw he had like I had dark hair and a big chin. I don't know. And the guy did not have dark hair and a big chin. But after the professor sort of mumbled that, like 80% of the class chose the guy in the lineup with dark hair and a big chin. And they, he was like, you are so susceptible, you don't realize it and whatever. And it was very, very depressing is what it was. <laughs> so there's no happy ending to that. It's just... No, just remember, humans are super, super fallible. Yeah. Just wanted I- to end on an article to say, memento mori, that's all. That's right. There you go. <laughs> Well, on that note, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include the supernova explosion that failed to kill its star, I got stuck in the Yellowstone floods, and why the U.S. military is listening to shrimp. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.